Amen. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome this morning to another edition, another time together of the Alamo City streaming broadcast. We greet those of you in the room. Our numbers are increasing gradually, and as we return to a bit more of normal, next Sunday in the services here, in the second service, this 11 o'clock service, we'll be uh, opening the doors to our preschool and our nursery and our children, um, hoping that uh, families, as you feel comfortable to bring your little ones back with you, you'll, you'll uh, find a welcome place and a wide open heart. Uh, we pray for our president today. We pray for all those, many of those surrounding him and throughout our country with the, with the COVID virus situation that's going on. I'm grateful, though, today that, that we, have a, we have another name more powerful than COVID-19, and, and it, his, his name starts with a J and ends with an S. I want you to speak that name with me, will you? The name Jesus. Let's say that again, the name Jesus, the name Jesus, amen. Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. Pour out your spirit, Lord, on this land. Lord, do it again. There was a young Welsh coal miner, 26 years old, named Evan Roberts, whom the Lord got a hold of in a quiet time, a quiet moment with him back in Around 1903, 1904, Larry Henry was probably alive during that time. Glad you're still here with us, Larry. Some of you, I doubt, I doubt that that is at all the case. But around, around just after the turn of the 20th century, God got a hold of a young man named Evan Roberts, spoke to him in a way that Evan Roberts could understand. He, he wasn't... Um, he wasn't a preacher. He, he wasn't given to fanatical ways of doing things at all. He, he knew the Lord, loved the Lord. He, he was just praying. He was just praying and praying for another revival in the nation of Wales. And he later reported that he felt like that the Lord had spoken to him specifically that in six months' time, there would be 100,000 Welshmen and women who would come to faith in Christ, that there would be a great revival, an outpouring of the Spirit like we are praying for. And he was instructed, he felt, by the Lord to travel to whatever churches would open the door, whatever groups of Christians that he could meet with, and he was to teach them to pray this prayer, this one-sentence prayer. And here's the prayer. Lord, send the Holy Spirit for Christ's sake. Lord, send the Holy Spirit for Christ's sake. He initially was only able to meet with, with young people, youth groups, small, small groups, small um, hamlet churches and and, but he, he went where the door would open, and there was that, that burden in his heart that the Lord has said, if the church will pray, revival's coming. 
There's an outpouring of the Spirit that's, that's, that's desired from heaven to be poured out upon the earth. We just need to agree with that. And here's our agreed prayer. Lord, pour out your Spirit for Christ's sake. Well, they began to pray and churches began to notice and that, that when they in, invited folks to come to pray, that was, there was a heart to do that. And so that was the prayer throughout Wales among the Christians. Lord, pour out your spirit for Christ's sake. Amazingly, amazingly, churches just began to fill up with people coming to pray. A lot like the 1857 prayer revival. And, and um, hamlets and small towns and larger cities in Wales. And, and the amazing thing, there was no Billy Graham. There was no central preacher. There were, there were um, it was no big and famous worship team that was, people were just showing up. God, they would get, out, get off work at four o'clock in the afternoon and they would go straight to the church. And they would be there in the church house, and I'm talking hundreds of people. Towns would turn out. They would be there until daylight the next morning, and then they would go to work. And that kind of miraculous level of energy continued for an extended period of time. Here's what happens when God just pours out his spirit on a nation. The police ran out of work. No kidding. So in order for the police to feel like that they were, they were earning their keep, many of them formed quartets and showed up at the church houses to sing in uniform, sing hymns, and lead, lead the place in worship. There was such a dramatic transformation of, of um, coal mining workers that it is reported and that was during the days when, the, when, when they used mules primarily and horses to pull the carts loaded with coal out of the coal mine. Now, you can read this. This is documented. They ended up having to buy a whole new set of horses and mules because the language of the coal miners cleaned up so much that the horses and mules couldn't understand the commands anymore. Can you believe that? Now, folks, here's something I just want to, some of you are readers. Some of you are students of history. You, you, you love to get the background. When we say, Lord, do it again, you're some of the ones who are saying, okay, well, how do we know he ever did it again? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Find a Google. Everybody got Google on a phone, Google on a computer. You can, you can Google first great awakening, second great awakening, Third Great Awakening and or the 1857 Prayer Revival. And what you will find is, and this is, this is when you know something, something out of the ordinary has happened. It's when a secular source, not, not a church source, but a secular source of historians, writers, will have to deal with something that actually happened that was beyond normal, that was beyond what uh, would be expected in governmental operation or in the cultural exercise, that it's, they're reporting these massive numbers of people showing up at these meetings 
and, and, and professing that, that they had given their lives to Christ and, and, and one's praying and, and, and then how that spills over into social change and, and interrelationship healing and so forth. When, when you find something in Wikipedia that is reporting and they, they could only use the terms that the people that day were describing it as a great awakening. Awakening of what? Awakening of a nation saying, we need God back in our country. We need to live a life that pleases, pleases him. We want his blessings. And whether you're, whether you're a believer or whether you're stone cold secular, when that many people and that much is going on, you can just stick your head in the sand and say nothing's going on, or you can notice and you can write it down, and it's there for us to read all of these decades later. I just want to encourage you. Google, Google First Great Awakening. You'll, you'll find names like George Whitfield and John Wesley, the, the, the British preachers that came over and began to preach. George Whitfield, Whitfield primarily. Jonathan Edwards, um, Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm telling you, that, that's where I got messed up. I, I'm just, I, I got messed up. Two, two things hit me early that got me messed up and surely messed up. One of them was the Jesus movement, that Jesus revolution, late 60s, early 70s, saw things, heard things, felt things, witnessed things that growing up in the church I had never experienced before. And suddenly there it was, folks who, kids who were a million miles away from God, all over the map with, with drugs and all kinds of crud going on and they just began to meet Jesus and the presence of Jesus, not, not church, not a religious order, but the sense of the loving presence of Jesus just coming upon folks and they start getting set free and they're my age and they're my, my demographic and they were just, it began to sweep the nation and songs and gatherings and coffee houses and young preachers and all that and and oh my goodness, and then I got swept up in that. Lord, if you're calling me to be a part of this, I want to be in on it. The only thing I felt like the Lord said to me during those days was follow me. I don't think I ever heard him say, I'm calling you to be a pastor and evangelist. All I seemed like I heard him say was to my heart, just follow me. Well, it turned out that I've ended up being a pastor these years and preaching, but but the whole point in congregations, the whole point in sermons, the point is following Jesus, just in being enraptured with who he is and, and loving him. And then, then I got ended up going to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, ran into two incredible professors that just lit this dimly glowing wick in my heart on the subject of spiritual awakening revival. One was Oscar Thompson and, and the other one was Roy Fish. And Dr. Thompson, every, every time we would meet for class, he would start the class with, Lord, we're not asking you just to help us get the information down. We're asking you to send a revival to us in this class, this day, this semester. And I'm telling you, Dr. Fish was the same thing. So then they took us into the history, how God has always, since the beginning of the church, had a point in time, had a season when he knew his people needed to be refreshed and that he would have a stirring in the hearts of a few to begin to pray, Lord, do it again. And then those few would turn into 
hundreds and then into thousands and then a nation and then nations and all the way back. You take it to Augustine, way back third century, fourth century. Then you bump it up to to Martin Luther in the 1500s and and then you take it into the 1700s and you've got Whitfield and Wesley and what's going on in England. Then you bump the the Atlantic and and it breaks out with Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts and the Log College and and then it hits again in this country again in the the early 1800s. You see, you you, you, you ask me about this and I just can't shut up. It's because it's the way of God. It's one of the ways of God with his church. His goal is not for the church to fall asleep in their decade, in their generation, and just to be going through the motions and just to have it all up here and nothing burning in here. His heart is for us to be freshly ignited with his fire, ignited with the promise of the Spirit to fill us and to energize us and to send us forth with joy instead of just ought to and you better quit this and you've got to start that and you better do this thing over here. Oh, let me catch my breath here a minute. Every time I get to talking about it, I just, I just can't get over it. It is a way of God, and I don't want us in our day to miss that as being a part of the heart of the Lord for us to experience. I need to say this. Revival doesn't always have to come with a capital R which means the whole nation, and it sweeps around the world. There can be a whole bunch of revivals with a little r that the Spirit of Jesus uses to just rock our personal world and change us and stir us and fill us up. He hadn't failed in answering our prayer if it doesn't go all the way from from the courthouse in San Antonio all the way to the to the, to the houses of Congress in L.A. and all around the major cities. He can do that, and that's what he's done before, and that's what we're praying, Lord, do it. Do it all over again. Pour out your spirit. But he has a way, folks, of meeting people no matter where they are, when they are, what they are, showing his presence to them, and a heart, get, a heart gets melted, and a new birth comes, a change comes, and the person becomes all that the Lord originally intended that one to be and to do. That, that's our heart. Lord, do it again. Big R, little R, you know, anywhere in between. We'll take it, Lord, but we just, we just want you to pour out your spirit. We want to see something happen in the lives of folks we know and care about that can't be explained by cultural influence upon them or can't be explained by the media's influence upon them. Lord, we're praying that you will do something that the only explanation for it is that you made your presence known to them and to our cities and to our nations. I want to encourage those of you, so many of you don't live here in San Antonio. You live in other cities and I want to encourage you to, to, to join your hearts with us. And, and, and as we ride the streets of San Antonio, we're praying, Lord, pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit, Lord, on that business, on that, on that church building and property, and on these neighborhoods, Lord, pour out your spirit. If you will do that where you are, and there comes to be this great crescendo of that specific request rising up from the church, across this nation, I believe that the Lord intends to answer that cry. If the cry stays in our hearts, Lord, pour out your spirit. 
If that keeps being generated inside our hearts, when we hear bad news, we hear challenging news, we hear another conflict, we hear another problem, instead of it just leaving us at a place where we get discouraged and we, and, and we want to just sit back and pull the covers up over our heads, that whenever we hear that stuff, and I call it stuff, whenever we hear those kinds of news, points of news, it ends up being inside us. Our knee-jerk reaction, our reflex is, Lord, pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Pour out your spirit upon this land, upon this nation, and our neighborhoods, and our churches, and in our companies, and wherever we may be. Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. Now, we, we, we began this a couple of weeks ago by believing that we needed to follow the Lord's instruction in how to pray as we pray for an outpouring, as we pray for revival in our land. That was Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, Jesus said, you pray this way. Your Father who is in heaven, he's not an earthly father. He's not limited to a human body. He's not limited to one or two or three or four or five bank accounts. He's not in the natural. He's your heavenly Father, and he rules heaven. And from heaven, he rules the universe. And you understand it. He's your Father because of your faith and your trust in me. That you, you have an earthly father who gave you earthly life, but now you have a spiritual father who gave you spiritual life. He's your father. He's your real daddy. He's the one that you look to, and he's above everything else. Our father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Holy is your name. And then, then Jesus said, you pray. We've, we've touched on this. We'll come back to it as we continue this. But he said, you pray for his kingdom to come, thy kingdom come, understanding you can't have a kingdom unless you have a king. The whole point of that prayer is he's, he's saying that we are instructed to pray, Lord, make your presence known in the hearts of people. Jesus taught, you can't, if you're looking for the kingdom in a place, in a building, on a mountain, on the ocean, in the land, you won't find it there. The kingdom of God to be found now is going to be found within the hearts of people. It's a simple, straightforward, shorthand way of praying. When Jesus would say that we're to pray, thy kingdom come, he's, just, he's saying, you pray for the kingdom of God, the presence of God, Jesus who is the king, to be made known to people. Folks, they don't have to come in a church building. That, that's great if they do, but the Lord reached Saul on the road to Damascus. He got a hold of Simon Peter in a fishing boat, blew his hat in the creek because of all the fish that the Lord blessed him with. And Simon Peter says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a wicked man. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, come on, go with me. You're going to fish men now. You're going to fish for men. Doesn't have to be in a church house. It can be anywhere somebody is. The Lord's not limited by sheetrock. He's not limited by I-beams. He's not limited by roof. He's not limited by architecture. He is where people are, folks. And when we pray, Lord, make your presence known to this one I love. Make your presence known to this one who seems to be so hard. Make your presence known to this one who's been hurt so badly and just is crushed. Lord, make your presence known. That's what it means to be praying, Lord, bring your kingdom. Bring your kingdom. The essence of the kingdom is the presence of the king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. Once the king makes his presence known, his preferences his, his, his desires begin to be working from the inside out. But that's what it's all about. So that's what we're praying. 
Lord, bring your kingdom. Make your presence known to people. I want to encourage you to do that, folks. Well, throughout your days, you see somebody. We talked about the ones on TV, but there are a bunch of others that aren't on TV that are influencers in our lives. And for us to pray, Lord, make your presence known. Make your presence known. Make your presence known. He does that by the work of his spirit. The work of the spirit of Jesus makes the presence of Jesus known. It's similar to what Evan Roberts was teaching the church in Wales to pray. Lord, send your Holy Spirit for Christ's sake. Well, when the Holy Spirit does what the Spirit does, he's going to make the spirit of the king present. Don't get lost in the words. Just understand. Hold on to that. You can't have a kingdom unless you have a king. So to bring the kingdom to this earth means that we're praying for the presence of the king to be made known. I'm just telling you, you start praying that way, you just now where you're praying for folks you care about and know and love, and you begin to pray that way, and you watch how over time the Lord by degrees and sometimes suddenly he'll begin to make his presence. They'll, give the, they'll have the residue of someone who has, who has been exposed to something that they didn't even know was real, that someone that they didn't even know really was real. Lord, bring your kingdom. Then he said, you pray your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Then we talked last week about the importance of forgiveness. Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. And then Jesus repeats that theme after he finishes the, the taught part of the prayer, he says, by repeating it again, is basically saying, if you want to be heard in heaven, if you want there to be an open heaven, then there's got to be a clean heart. The clean heart is about how we are still relating to and dealing with folks this way who have hurt us, who have offended us, who have wounded us. And Jesus, when he, if he says it one time, that's plenty. But if he comes back and says it again and then adds another sentence on to that second time around, we really better get it. He's saying, if you don't forgive men for their sins against you, your father won't forgive you for your sins against him. The, the importance for the relationship to be unbroken, for the heaven to stay, stay clear so that our prayers are heard. David would say, Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity, if I'm holding on to iniquity, unforgiveness being one of those places of sin, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The Lord will not hear me. Oh, goodness, folks. Isn't this a time when we need the Lord to hear us? So we don't need to be short-circuiting the prayer or blowing a fuse on the prayer so the prayers don't get through. You say, well, you, know, you don't know what that one did to me. I know. The Lord does. And when you read that verse in Matthew 6, did you notice an asterisk out by the side of what he said and you follow the asterisk down to the foot of the page and the, that person that you're so mad at and still so hurt about, that name is listed right there? I don't see any names listed by an asterisk. You say, but it's impossible. We're not saying that all of a sudden what they did to you is not so bad anymore. It can be as bad and maybe even worse than you have ever described. The point is, this is it. I choose to stop being the judge and the jury with regard to that offense against me. To release or to forgive means to release. It means 
I release them and what they have done to me, I release them unto the Lord. Vengeance is mine, the Lord says. I will repay. He never gives two things away. He never gives his vengeance and he never shares his glory. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So if there is vengeance to be meted out, that's the Lord's deal. That's his lane. Our lane is to continually be giving to him the ones who have offended us, hurt us, lied against us, perpetrated things, whatever it is, whatever it is, we give it to him so that the heavens stay open, so that we can count on the fact that he's still hearing and that we're trusting him with that which we don't have the jurisdiction to fix in the first place. All right, so we were in that last week. Lots of response, lots of response from those of you who listen. Some so humble in your statements that, that, that I, I don't want there to be any unforgiveness in my heart. And, and going around and making phone calls and, and, and going back again to, to make sure that, that you've asked forgiveness and, and, and the ones that you've expressed it to, whether they accept it or not, you've taken the step to Forgive them and, and to do that before the Lord. It, it's been an amazing thing. But tell you, that's a step toward revival in a bunch of your lives. When those things get swept out of our hearts and the heavens get open because we've turned the unforgiveness in our hearts toward people, we've turned it over to the Lord. We talked about that last week. Now, this morning, there's, I want us to look for just a, for a little bit. And this will not be an exhaustive treatment of the subject by any means. But, but I feel like there are some important things at this stage of our journey together that we need to hear. Jesus will say one of his lines toward the end of that teaching prayer. He will say, Lord, we have permission. We are instructed to pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. The, an, an, an inadequate English translation, it, and if it's this way in your copy of the Scripture, this is not how it is exactly stated by Jesus in the original language. There's, there's supposed to be a definite article in front of that adjective, evil. Deliver us not just from evil. That's not how it reads. The words of Jesus were, deliver us from evil the evil, meaning a personality that is most known for evil, the evil one, synonym for Satan, synonym for the devil. You and I have permission to pray for. In fact, we are in this instruction, in a sense, commanded to pray where we see and recognize the usurping of freedom by the enemy He's bringing in destruction. He's bringing in ruin upon the lives of people and in broader settings that involve many people. You and I have permission to pray, Lord, rescue me from the devil. Rescue me from the evil one. It's significant that the word evil, it literally comes from another word that means toilsome labor. Hard, pressing, excruciating, because it lasts over time, labor. That, that can mean sickness. That can mean oppression from people. 
That, that can mean a number of different things, oppression and, and toilsome labor trying to beat off, fight off depression or anger or whatever it would be. That Satan specializes in being a cruel taskmaster who cares nothing for the individual, the, the, the servant, the one beneath him. He just wants them to know misery from various forms. And so Jesus is saying, you have permission to pray, Lord, rescue me from the devil. Rescue me from the evil one. Now, I just need to say this. I don't know why it is. that It, it seems like in the, in, in the American church today from certain quarters, you get to talking about filling of the, the filling of the Holy Spirit and people turn and look at you like that calf looking at a new gate or that deer in the headlights. What are you talking about? It, it's as if it's, a, it, it's an unknown, unspoken statement in Scripture that we, that we don't deal with. That, that, that he knows we need... We need the helper. We need the help from the helper. And we don't need just a little bit of the help from the helper. We need a lot of help from the helper. We, we don't need that just one day a week on Sunday. We need the help from the helper every second of every day and night. And, and we live freer. We live stronger. We live with greater joy when we are realizing that's how the Lord sees us. Not a standalone robot but as someone who is desperately but lovingly enjoying being dependent upon the life of Jesus flowing into me so that I then have the energy to do and to be what he wants me to be. That I'm never told to just do this on your own. Here's the standards. Here are the rules. You go for it. And if you don't, if you don't grade 100 on that test, I am really ticked and you are in big trouble. What kind of good news is that? That's bad news. The good news is he knows I'm a sinner. He knows what it is to need to save me by his grace. That's the cross. He knows how to put faith in me to believe that Jesus didn't just die for the whole world. Jesus died for David Walker. But then beyond that, he knows that I'm going to need help. I'm going to need help loving him. I'm going to need help obeying him. Wanting to. He's got to fix my want to. Can somebody say an amen? He's got to help me with my want to so that he shifts my want to so that I'm wanting to do the things that he wants me to do. And when he fills me with his spirit, that's what this is all about. It's about the helper helping. The cross is forgiveness. The blood of Jesus washes away our sins, but the helper helps. His name is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the invisible presence of Jesus. I don't, know, I don't know why that seems to be just a strange topic. And I think that can be why some Christians go into heaven forgiven, but can just check out and give up on the Christian life because they've never been taught that we're supposed to ask for the helper to help us. Instead of just being told, you got to quit this and you got to start that. And if you mess up, you're in big trouble. Instead of ever being told, there is a part of you, sir, part of you, ma'am, that will always want to go the wrong direction. It's called the flesh, the old man. Paul would say in Galatians, the two war against each other. 
the old and the new so that we have a hard time doing what we really know we want to do. Where does the victory come? The victory comes when King Jesus, in the presence of his spirit, at our invitation, takes possession of the controls of our lives. And he begins to move. He begins to direct. And he's doing it with his strength and not our ought to. Our ought to. And you better. He affects I want to. All right. So that's the part about the spirit. That's why we stay on it so much. Soon as I quit seeing people look at me like that deer in the headlights, then maybe we'll go on to something else. But, but until that gets cleared up, until that's a, that's a given in my heart, yes, the cross is my place of forgiveness, but yes, the filling of the Spirit is the place where I am so changed, I don't have to keep going back to the cross for the same forgiveness over the same stuff the rest of my life. There's a change that comes. Ah. All right. Now, that's one thing, but this other part is this matter of the devil, of resisting the devil. Some folks try to find a demon under every paper plate and under every napkin. Some folks try to blame the devil or a demon on everything. We've got the flesh. We can have enough problem living right without the devil being within 200 miles. We've got a bent in the wrong direction, will, that the filling of the Spirit, the new life in Christ, can make, make different. So, but there can be successes, but there can also just be this ignorance, this, 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 this ignoring, this not even, not even addressing what the Scripture says and Paul and others will repeatedly say is important. Case in point, your baby, two-year-old, three-year-old, wakes up in the middle of the night screaming her little lungs out. She jumps up, comes into your bed. You get her up in the bed, you hold her close, but she's still sobbing. What's happened, baby? What's happened? And she tries to describe this dream that she's just had, this, this nightmare that we call them. Where did that come from? That wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the benign culture out here, as if we can call it benign. But there is someone alive and operative, the second most powerful being in the universe, whom Jesus said has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. There can be times when oppression, sadness, gloom, a heaviness that you can't seem to shake comes in upon you. It may be tied to a, to a season of the year. It may be tied to a person's face, but it's almost as if it, you don't control it. It controls you. That whenever it is, shows up, you're, you're, just, you're just toast. Where does that come from? Where some of it can be our flesh acting up, but I just want us to to be honest here this morning, get this out in the light. There was a real devil. There was a real Satan. And because he hates Jesus, he hates you. He hates you. So in the light of that, will you follow me to just, just two or three places of Scripture where the subject, the subject of the spiritual warfare is addressed. I want you to find your way, if you would, 
first to, um, to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is writing. For though we walk in the flesh, this is verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we walk in the flesh, walk in the flesh meaning live this life in a human body. We're, we're, we're definitely human. We have flesh and blood. We have sunrises and sunsets. For though we walk in the flesh, look at this, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying, present active indicative participle, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now you would say, and it's accurate, this is Paul, an apostle, being given authority to um, train, to teach, to educate, in a sense to, to rule over the churches that he started. But we can't totally remove ourselves from the th truth of this passage. When you are a follower of Jesus and the Lord has put you in a place to be, he's given you opportunity to influence others, and you're there on that assignment because he put you there. You, you, are, you are on mission, whether it's your, your job, and certainly I hope by now, Alamo City family and those listening, you, you know, the, the, the Lord isn't just concerned about whether you teach a Bible class in a church house. He's not primarily concerned that the only work you do for him is inside the confines of a denominational structure. He is where you are. He has put you, he has opened doors and closed doors. He's situated you in the place where you are for his purpose. And he right there wants you to know you are his missionary. You, 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 are, you are the one representing him. You are the one through whom he wants to bring great light and great hope and great freedom to those around you who don't have it and are not walking in. So read this verse in the light of that perspective as well. Though we walk in the flesh, though you go to work in the flesh, drive a car in the flesh, the weapons of our warfare, warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Divinely powerful. Divinely powerful. Meaning, God sees them as powerful. God sees them as effective. They are supernaturally powerful. They're beyond the realm of the natural. They're beyond the realm of human reason. They're beyond the realm of human finance. They're not beyond the realm of human control and influence. These are supernatural abilities and powers. The weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful. And look at this. Here's what they're there for. For the destruction of fortresses. Fortress, a fortress in the time that Paul would write that, there were some of the Sicilian pirates that, that had these massive stone forts on the Mediterranean coast. And, and some scholars think that's what Paul was thinking about. He was just those in, impenetrable, impregnable fortresses made out of stone, carved out of solid rock. 
But he's saying when he uses the destruction of fortresses, he's meaning those kinds of situations and settings that seem to be absolutely impossible to breach. It's not a, it's not a, not a bamboo. It, it's not sheetrock. It, it's not paneling. Solid rock. Granite carved out fortress. But then he uses the word destroying fortresses, and the word destruction means there such a distinct and definite and pervasive destruction that there's not even one little old pebble left big enough to stack on top of another little old bitty pebble. It's as if the, the fortress has been ground to powder. There is nothing left for it to be constituted into in and of its original state. The weapons of our for warfare are beyond this world. They're beyond human capacity or limitation. And they are for the purpose of grinding to, power, to powder fortresses behind which people are kept, behind which people are imprisoned, bound. Then you ask, well, what kind of stronghold is he talking about? He gives some of the answer to that. Look at verse 5. We are, as we exercise the weapons of our warfare, we are destroying, grinding to powder, speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now that sounds pretty militant. That sounds pretty aggressive. But Paul's confidence was not in his talent or his ability. His confidence was in the weapons that God had given him. All right, so as he exercises the weapons, here's what happens. Every destroying speculation. Speculation translated in the English is the word from which we get the word logic, logic. We are destroying logic, false logic, faulty logic. We are destroying conclusions that people have about Jesus, about God, about the eternal, about things that would relate to spiritual matters. We are destroying logical conclusions that make perfect sense to them it's just that they're dead wrong. Can you believe that? And so it can be these whole systems of thought, logical systems of thought that cause multitudes of people to be bound, protected in the fortress of that logical system of thought. So Paul is saying, instead of us just having to wait until that wears itself out or all those people change over to something else, we have the ability through the use of the weapons of our warfare to pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we're trusting you, we're believing you to destroy, to destroy the conclusions that those are believing that are false. Got to tell you one little story real quick. Our first church to pastor, you've heard, heard me mention the First Baptist Church of Hobart, Oklahoma. Southwestern Oklahoma, halfway between Lone Wolf and Godibo, Kiowa County. Unbelievable place. 5,000 people in the town. When we got there right out of seminary and to, to pastor that, begin to pastor that church, they put up with so much ignorance. 
And all those folks were so loving. You know, Shirley was just a baby, and I was just, I still had, you know, I, I, I still didn't know anything. I, I was trying to find the maps and, and, and the table of contents in my Bible in some ways. They, but they, they loved us, took us in. And I had been so impregnated, and I use that word, by this, by this call to prayer and how God had used the call to prayer to ignite awakening in history past. Coming straight out of seminary, going into a little, little, little town called Hobart. So I, I, I gathered to ask if there were about five or six men, laymen in the church, if they would meet with me to pray on Tuesday nights. And, and, all, and I said, here's what I want to do. I, I want this to be something that as we pray through, it'll take God to do it. It won't be us guilting other men to start coming to church or, or, or visiting people who hadn't visited, visited, as Baptists would call it, visited in a while. I said, listen, I want us to start, I want us to make a list of the hardest, meanest, coldest men in this town. I want the bookies. I want the sheriff. If he, man, he was on our list. And, and not that he was a bad person. He was just hard. And, and some of these others, had, they'd been busy every time a revival would come through the town. They'd get the door knocked on, and they'd, they'd just shut the door, and nobody answered the door. For years, that had been going on. But there was one man in the town. He was a welder. Known as an excellent welder, but he was, he was beyond that, having another goal working in his heart, and it wasn't he wanted to be a college professor. Very bright, very articulate, very, very much full of all the reasons why there couldn't be a God, why the church is irrelevant, why, why all this about Jesus is just overblown fluff. His name went on there. So we started meeting on Tuesday nights, and just praying, Lord, will you make your presence known? And we'd call their name, lay their hands, or lay our hands on the list. Will you make your presence known? Will you make your presence known? We, we can't do it, Lord, but we believe that you, you, you love them. One of the verses was, if you believe on the Lord, Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. You and your household shall be saved. We started playing for the whole household that those men represented. <laughs> but our deal was, we weren't going to knock on any door. We weren't going to make a phone call. We, we weren't going to be sending them a note. We were just going to pray. Pray for six months. Six months straight. Nothing in the natural happened. But I'm telling you, <laughs> in six months' time, one by one, these guys off of the list, on their own, started showing up in the church house. And they had said they'd come in, they'd come in from the back like they didn't know what in the world have I just done with myself. And they'd come in and they would sit on the back row. And I'm this young Baptist preacher just ripping and snorting and tearing up, but I, it would blow me away when I'd see a name on my list sitting back there. I, I got, kind of stuttered. I was shocked. And one after another, those men wanted to talk. Wanted to know more about Jesus. One of them was so rich, he owned half of Kiowa County, they thought. He's so far beyond anything because he's got so much money. I went to his house at his invitation with him and his wife, led him to faith in Jesus sitting there in his room. One after another, the old county sheriff, the county sheriff, he ended up, he, would, he could turn the air blue with his profanity. He didn't care who was listening. By the time he left Hobart, that county sheriff was coming by vacation Bible school and loading kids up in his squad car, turning the lights on, and riding around town with them. 
best friend I ever had. <laughs> but here's this other one, this agnostic, this, this, this killed with his hands, but active in the brain. And lo and behold, he called me. I didn't know he even knew my name. Called me and said, I need to talk. I want to talk. Would you, would you meet with me? So I, I go over there to his place, to his house, walk in there, and just out of some kind of, of wanting to make sure that he kind of got me positioned in the discussion, he started going through these agnostic logical points to him. And, and the reasons why this couldn't happen, but here's what it immediately sounded like. This is my simple brain. I said, the boy is talking to me. I'm saying this to myself. And he sounds like a BB in the bottom of a Coke can. Have you ever had one of those, a rock or we, as, as a kid, put something in the bottom of an empty Coke can and let that thing rattle around? It makes noise, but you can tell it's hollow. You can tell it isn't a real thing. And he just kept going until finally he figured out that he was like a BB in the bottom of a tin can. And he just kind of trailed off. It's kind of trailed off. I left that day, but a friendship was struck. I knew something was happening in his heart. I could sense it because he was saying things, interested in things he'd never been interested in before. That those strong, that stronghold of false intellectualism was beginning to come down. <laughs> and the prisoner inside was seeing the light of day and was wanting out. The time came not long after that. When he started showing up in church, actually, I mean, you talk about turning heads. Because he had, a, he had a history with church people. He would be mean to them, crude to them. They saw him, quickly put their heads back in their songbooks, I think. But he came, he came some more. He eventually said, I need what you're talking about. I need this Jesus I don't, have all, I don't have everything figured out. I've still got some questions, but there's something more real about him than there is real about where I've been trying to live. The weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And the fortresses are, among other things, but this huge category, false logical conclusions. The enemy has a PhD in human reason. He knows how to present a case, a false case. It may be a lie. It may be a projection of the future, specifically about who Jesus is or how can you know that there was a creator, etc., etc. But he, he sends that, and then he will try to buttress that and buttress that with other levels of conclusion, logic. And folks, listen, the reason folks don't come to Jesus is because he doesn't make sense to them yet. It's not that they're just evil, bad, wicked, wrong, all those things. There, there are some that would fit into that category. But many, many times, it's just because their eyes haven't been opened. The, that Paul will say, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Our role, folks, in our joy is to recognize that's how Satan works but to recognize that the Lord has given us offensive weapons to counter that assault and that imprisonment. And it is to pray in the name of Jesus. But then he goes on to point out in 2 Corinthians 10 that the rest of that is 
and we're destroying every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. you believe that? We're taking every... So powerful was Paul convinced that these weapons are. That God has the ability to take thoughts captive. And the real meaning for this, for that word for thoughts, is, is thoughts that are included, that, that, are, that are thoughts or plots or designs for evil. It's not just benign, uh, neutral thoughts. Paul said, I'm telling you, these weapons are strong enough that we are able to pray that even the thoughts of the wicked, the wicked thoughts, debasing thoughts, the system thoughts of ones away from God, that even those thoughts would be made to come and bow at the feet of Jesus. I wonder how many are listening to me this morning who would say, I am a testimony that God can do that. That in the process of changing me, he took some thoughts that I thought were rock solid and they were beyond any refute. And I came to realize there wasn't truth or it was a faulty presupposition. It, the, the, the conclusion was wrong. And so he has brought those very thoughts and turned them in the place where those very thoughts bow at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Folks, that's why we say the most significant role that you ever may ever play in your family the most significant way that we would ever spend our time could be recognizing that which has been given to us, the weapons of our warfare for the purpose of setting captives free. Now, I want to quickly move. So what are the weapons? What are the weapons? What are the weapons of our warfare? I want to say to you, first of all, the most important weapon, other than the name of Jesus, is your refusal to vacate your position. And if God has put you in a place, if it's a marriage, if it's in a company, if it's with children, if it's on a, on a street, whatever it is, but God has put you there. The Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians 6, and I reference that, having done everything, you stand firm meaning you refuse to believe anything other than what God's heart is, what God wants. It doesn't matter that things haven't changed in a while. It doesn't matter that even though you receive this light and this truth and you begin to try to operate, that it may go seemingly unchanged for a while. But Paul will say, having done everything, you stand firm. Don't quit. Don't run. Don't give up. Don't check out. Shirley has told me recently that I need, to, I need to talk to the men at some point about not checking out at home, not, not giving up at home, not assuming that everything related to things of spiritual importance or good is relegated to the wife. She would say, and she's had wives to tell her, that men, men do not seem to fully understand how important your presence in the home is and how important your influence in the things of good and God and right really are. That there is this, 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 this wide gap of the lack of covering in a home when husbands just check out or dads just check out. When, it is, when there is a father who realizes this, that God gave me the wife I had, 
God gave me the children that I have. And I am going to stand here. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm not going to know all the verses in the Bible. I'm not going to have a quiet time maybe like my wife does. I'm not going to be able to do everything exactly the way that maybe it ought to be according to protocol. But I'm telling you, Lord, I love my babies. I love my wife. And I ain't moving. I'm not going to give this up. I'm not going to bail out. I'm not going to chicken out and become more involved with something over here and leave this gaping hole of the lack of spiritual covering over my family. There's, there's, there's reason for that, that there's a need for that to be spoken, that, that where we husbands can maybe need to confess to you, I've, I've checked out on you. Sometimes men do it because they just don't feel like that, that they're worthy or that they're able or that they're skilled in spiritual things. That doesn't remove the sense of responsibility that the Lord would say, I gave you what I gave you. I gave you the ones I've given you. And I want you to stand there and pray for their protection and believe me for their provision. And don't chicken out. Don't quit. Don't run. You you stay there. You stay there. Weapon number one, stand. Stand. Don't be trying to find a furlough. Don't be trying to find some other place to be. Except that this is, that's what Paul would say, having done everything, realizing that our warfare is, is not against flesh and blood, but is against the forces of darkness. That's Ephesians 6. You can read down through that very, very clear. And he will say, you stand and you stand firm. Other weapons, other, other weapons. The name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. You have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. You humble yourself as he humbled himself, took upon the form of a servant, crucified on a cross, and as a result of that obedience to the Father, he was highly exalted, given a name which is above every other name. Do you, does it, do you see why folks get so upset and they want to make laws that you can never speak the name of Jesus Christ in a schoolroom, or you get fired if you pray in the name of Jesus or speak in the name of Jesus in a boardroom, and the most culturally dirty word and among many in our nation is the name Jesus. Why? Why? It's because, it's because of the authority of that name. It is because the final power and authority of that name. If, if we saw it, 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 we need to recognize the backdoor kind of compliment of the devil saying you're on the right track and I'm trying to get everybody off the right track. Even Satan himself has to bow his knee to the name of Jesus. So when that baby comes into your room crying in the middle of the night with a terrible nightmare or there's been oppression to come, depression, sadness to come upon you that seems to be more than what should normally be there. I want to just encourage you. Get up out of that bed. Leave that baby in the bed with, 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 with mom or somebody else, you know, or you or however we're going to do that, whoever you're. She's crawled up in the bed to get comfortable. You and mom or grandmom are, are, are there holding her, taking care of her. But get yourself up out of that bed and walk into her room where that happened to her with your eyes wide open, light doesn't even have to be on. Begin to speak the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus. I resist Satan and every assignment of Satan against my baby. 
I refuse to allow it to go on without it being challenged. I'm resisting in the name of Jesus the darkness that has come against my baby. I reject it in the name of Jesus. And I'm going to say, here's what I'm going to say. Jesus to that window. Jesus to that window. Jesus to that door. Jesus to that window. Jesus to the ceiling. Jesus to the floor. And everything in between. Now, I know some folks listen to this and say, that's a crazy country preacher. So how are your antidepressants working for your baby? How much sleep are you getting? You step into your place as a child of Almighty God, and you lift up and take up that name that is above every name. Some of you have oppression at work. Get there early. Get there early. Get there early. You don't even have to say it out loud. But as you walk, your spirit is saying, Jesus, Jesus, come your kingdom to this place. Be done your will. Don't, don't, don't tell me it doesn't work. Don't tell me it won't make any difference. Don't tell me somebody is too far gone for Jesus to do his work. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Because there was so much evidence that one humble people bow before the Lord and they say to the Lord, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this. I can't stop it. But Lord, I trust you and I will speak your name, Jesus. I'm speaking it toward the boardroom, Jesus. And I'm speaking the name of Jesus to all points in between. You know, if, if things in the natural <laughs> don't immediately begin to break and change, something will be happening inside you that you won't ever want to let go of. Because when you speak his name and you're praising his authority, the scripture says he sits enthroned on shouts of praise. The manifest presence of the king sits enthroned upon shouts of praise. So you step into those settings, you step into those situations, realizing there's authority to dismantle speculations and to bring down prideful thoughts and prideful positions. And then in the name of Jesus, order can be brought as the destroyer is expelled, restricted, and the kingdom of God can flourish now in the hearts of people. Amen? Now, I just have thrown so much out there at you today. And I, but there's so much in this that it's just hard for me to know where to dip a spoon in and go for it. But I, 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 want, I want you to become informed about what God has done in our nation before. Google first, second, third great awakening in our country. Spend some time on these verses. Lord, I want you to show me what the weapons of my warfare are all about. And I want you to show me how to pray. It's not about your authority. It's not about your faith. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his authority. It's about who he is. Amen. Amen. God bless you.